Welcome to the Critique Journal Club podcast for March 2014. I'm Neil Orford and this is where we go through the literature that caught our eye in the last month. So it's been a big month for sepsis in the intensive care literature. And let's start with the article in JAMA, Mortality Related to Severe Sepsis and Septic Shock Among Critically Ill Patients in Australia and New Zealand from 2000 to 2012. So this large database linkage study reports a remarkable decrease in mortality from septic shock in Australia and New Zealand over a 12-year period. So it was 35% in 2000 and 18.4% in 2012. To overcome the effect of increased diagnosis and low acuity additions to it, and this is called the Will Rogers effect, and it's a great discussion about it in the accompanying editorial. But to overcome that, they carefully confirmed diagnosis, adjusted for severity of illness, and used objective definitions. So overall, it appears sepsis mortality is decreasing in Australia and New Zealand, and in addition, more sepsis patients are being discharged home in comparison to other diagnostic categories. So other than a good news story about the decrease in sepsis mortality in the area, uh, this also suggests that allowances for decrease in mortality over time must be built into future research. So that's the first sepsis article. Then we had a couple of sepsis articles in the New England Journal of Medicine. The first, albumin replacement in patients with severe sepsis or septic shock by the Albios study investigators. Since SAFE, we have pondered the possible protective role of albumin in sepsis, with the subgroup analysis showing a tantalizingly close odds ratio for protection when albumin was used as a resuscitation fluid compared to normal saline. But this was a subgroup, not a rigorously controlled sepsis trial, so it has remained an area of ambiguity. This prospective open-label RCT conducted in 100 Italian ICUs randomized 1,818 adults with severe sepsis criteria within the previous 24 hours to receive 20% albumin and crystalloid versus crystalloid alone until day 28. Both groups received fluid initially per early goal-directed therapy protocols and the albumin group were given 20% albumin to achieve serum albumin levels of greater than 30 grams per litre with no other colloids permitted. They report that the groups were similar at baseline. There was a slight imbalance in the number of organ functions. They also report treatment separation with the serum albumin 23 in the saline group or crystalloid group versus 30 in the albumin group. There was no difference in fluid balance. There was no difference in primary outcome, which was 28-day mortality, and it was 31.8% in the albumin group and 32% in the crystalloid group. There was also no difference in 90-day mortality, overall organ failures. Albumin had a lower CVS score, a higher coag score, and a higher liver score. And the albumin group had shorter time to suspension of vasopressor or inotropes. And finally, post hoc analysis of patients with septic shock, so that was excluding those without septic shock who had severe sepsis only, 
found a benefit in 90-day mortality with albumin with a risk ratio of 0.87, confidence intervals 0.77 to 0.99. So overall, there was no mortality difference if albumin was used compared to crystalloid for septic shock. Albumin had better cardiovascular characteristics and crystalloid had better liver and coagulation characteristics, but it is hard to know the clinical significance of these. Maybe albumin in septic shock alone produced better outcomes at 90 day, but that was a post hoc analysis. Now if you don't use albumin this way, that is, you use it as a volume replacement in a 4% solution, you may argue this is not the right design. Still, it is a big albumin study and it provides valuable evidence. The study of albumin versus crystalloid as volume expansion, that sort of safe design study, or targeting serum levels, the albus design, in septic shock only, is perhaps the next step. The next sepsis study is the high versus low blood pressure target in patients with septic shock, the sepsis spam investigators. So the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines recommend a mean arterial blood pressure target of 65 millimeters of mercury in septic shock. That's level 1C equals strong recommendation with low level of evidence. They do also note a higher target may be necessary in the presence of atherosclerotic disease, hypertension, etc. There has been evidence published reporting higher mean arterial pressures are attained in patients with septic shock and some evidence suggesting a map of 75 or greater may preserve renal function. So enters this prospective RCT of higher map 80 to 85 versus lower map 65 to 70 as the blood pressure targets for five days in patients with early septic shock and that was defined as within six hours and they were stratified by the presence or absence of chronic hypertension. It was power-based on 45% mortality at 28 days and a 10% absolute risk reduction of death. They enrolled 776 patients and report similar baseline characteristics. Treatment separation was achieved. And in both groups, the authors note that the target blood pressures were exceeded. The high blood pressure group received more vasopressors for longer, and there was no difference in IV fluids between the groups. There was no difference in primary outcome of 28-day mortality, 36.5% in the high group, 34% in low. There was no difference in 90-day mortality or in secondary outcomes. Of interest, the chronic hypertension group, which made up more than 40% of the total cohort, had a higher rate of doubling of creatinine and renal replacement therapy in the lower MAP group. So that rate of renal replacement therapy was 31.7% in the high group and 42.2% in the low group. So in summary, in all comers, a target map of 65 to 70 or 80 to 85 didn't really matter. But in chronic hypertensives, a map of 80 to 85 millimeters of mercury 
was associated with significant decrease in renal injury and in renal replacement therapy, which seems to be an important outcome. So is that enough to change our practice to make us aim for higher mean arterial pressures in patients with chronic hypertension? Okay, the next sepsis study was in JAMA, and this was the interaction of vasopressin and corticosteroids in septic shock, a pilot randomized controlled trial. So this prospective, open-label, randomized, controlled pilot trial provides early evidence for another question in the vasopressin corticosteroid septic shock puzzle, which is, is there an interaction between these agents? Now the rationale comes from the VAST study, which if you remember was a negative trial with 28-day mortality in septic shock of 35.4% in the vasopressin group versus 39.3% in the NORAD group. However, the a priori subgroup analysis provided some interesting results. Firstly, vasopressin was associated with a reduced mortality in less severe septic shock, that is, when it was started when the open label NORAD was less than 15 mics per minute, but no benefit in the more severe group. And that was a finding that has surprised many people. Secondly, vasopressin and steroids were associated with a lower mortality than noradrenaline and steroids, and that was also compared to vasopressin with no steroids and NORAD with no steroids. And thirdly, early vasopressin was associated with a reduced progression of renal failure and need for renal replacement therapy. Now that was all uh, subgroup analysis, so it's hypothesis generating. This pilot trial aimed to test the interaction between vasopressin and corticosteroids and test the feasibility of vasopressin as the initial vasopressor in septic shock. They enrolled 63 adults with early septic shock to vasopressin plus hydrocort versus vasopressin plus placebo. The vasopressin dose was 0.013 units per minute and it was titrated up to 0.06 units per minute after which hydrocort 50 mg IV QID or placebo was added. If persistently hypertensive they received open label catecholamines. So what they found is that in 23 of 31 patients in the vasopressin and hydrocort group reached the maximum vasopressin levels and received hydrocort. There was no difference in vasopressin levels in either group. The hydrocortisone patients were weaned off vasopressin more quickly, 3.1 days less, and received half the vasopressin dose. And there was no difference in mortality or organ dysfunction. The authors argue it is feasible to use vasopressin as a first-line agent there may be an, an interaction with hydrocortisone and a multi-center double-blind RCT of vasopressin compared with noradrenaline as initial vasopressor therapy in septic shock, including an interaction with corticosteroids, is now underway. So that'll be really interesting to see what the results of that trial are. So last and definitely not least, we had the process study published in the New England Journal of Medicine and this is the American Early Goal Directed Therapy study. 
So if you remember, we have the process trial, and we've also waiting for the arise from Australia and New Zealand, and the promise from the UK, all underway simultaneously, and the other two should be published later this year or next year. So these three trials form the multi-centre response to the Rivers trial, and all are must-read, must-know evidence, as they will be debated at length over the next decade. So let's start with process, because we got to see it this month. So this prospective RCT had three treatment arms to which patients were randomised one to one to one. The patients were adults with suspected sepsis greater than two SERS criteria plus refractory hyperperfusion, which was systolic blood pressure less than 90 after 20 mL per kilo of fluid over 30 minutes, uh, or vasopressor requirements. And that 20 mL per kilo was changed during the study to one litre or a lactate greater than four, and they had to be enrolled within two hours of shock. The interventions, so the first was standard care, of which there were 456 patients, and that was just standard bedside physician, could not be a lead investigator, do what you want. The second intervention was protocol early goal-directed therapy. There were 439 patients in this, and that was essentially the Rivers protocol, so mixed venous catheter, IV fluids, vasopressors, dobutamine, blood, a ventilate, as per protocol for six hours. The third arm was protocol standard care, and there were 446 patients in this arm. And this was a central line when required, mandated fluids and vasoactive agents to achieve euvolemia and systolic blood pressure targets, and this was applied for six hours. They achieved good adherence in both the protocol groups. So in the early goal-directed therapy group, it was 88% adherence and standard 95.4%. The groups were well matched at baseline and were randomised within 70 minutes of shock. So pretty quick. Now the difference in treatment that occurred in the first six hours, firstly in terms of IV fluid, the standard protocol arm got 3.3 litres compared to early goal-directed therapy, got 2.8, usual care, 2.3. The second difference was vasopressors. Early goal-directed got 55% compared to standard 52 and usual care down at 44%. The third is dobutamine. Early goal-directed got dobutamine in 8% of cases compared to standard which is 1.1% and usual 0.9%. And that's not surprising because most centres would only use dobutamine in septic shock if it was part of a protocol mandating it. From 6 to 72 hours, the groups didn't differ, and the blood pressure was met earlier with the two protocol groups compared to the standard care group. Okay, what about outcomes? Well, the primary outcome in hospital death, any cause at 60 days, Early goal-directed therapy, 21%, standard, 18.2%, usual, 18.9%. So there was no difference, and there was no difference between protocol groups in usual care. The relative risk is 1.04, confidence intervals 0.82 to 1.31. The secondary outcomes, all-cause 90-day mortality, 31.9% for EGDT, 30.8% for standard, 337 for usual. No difference. 
no difference in one-year mortality, no difference for cardiovascular, respiratory, renal failure duration. In terms of C of renal replacement therapy duration, there was a higher incidence in the standard group, that's the standard protocol, which is 6%, compared to early goal-directed therapy and usual, which were around 3%. And there was no difference in length of stay. So what are the issues with this study? The first is a minor one, that they did change the fluid entry criteria from 20 mils per kilo to just one litre during the study. The second issue, and by far the bigger one, is that there was a change in enrolment numbers during the study. So the initial uh, number of sample size calculated was 1950 patients based on a mortality of 30 to 46 percent, uh, a absolute reduction in mortality of 6 to 7 percent with 80 percent power. Now before the second interim analysis they realized that the observed mortality rate was 20 percent much lower than the 30 to 46 percent expected. So as a response they decreased the numbers from 1950 to 1350 as this would allow them to, in their words, preserve the same power for the same absolute risk reduction. Now that's a big call uh, and will and should attract criticism because one can argue that the sepsis mortality was never going to be 30 to 46 percent but also that a 6 percent absolute risk reduction from 30% was hopeful, but from 20% seems pie-in-the-sky stuff. So overall, this large multi-center RCT reports no advantage to protocolized resuscitative care over standard care in patients who present to ED, develop septic shock, and receive appropriate early antibiotics. But you could also add to that that they have to be in a hospital capable of achieving a baseline 60-day mortality in septic shock of 20%. So perhaps protocolized care would be of benefit if an institution's baseline mortality is higher than this, like in the River study. Otherwise, maybe the take-home message is keep doing what you're doing and continually review outcomes so you know if you are slipping. So that's it for the sepsis trials for March, and that's a pretty big month of sepsis trials in March, uh, and won't be forgotten quickly. Let's move on to some other things. So also in the New England Journal of Medicine, we have hemicraniectomy in older patients with extensive middle cerebral artery stroke by the Destiny 2 investigators. Now this is a really interesting trial as it reports that in over 61-year-olds with an MCA stroke who have a hemicraniectomy within 48 hours, that they will have better severe disability-free survival than standard care. That sounds good, doesn't it? Let's look at the details. This prospective open-label RCT was designed as a sequential trial that stops recruitment as soon as harm, futility or efficacy is shown. The patients had to have a unilateral MCA stroke, be over 61 years old and have had it for less than 48 hours or have had symptoms for less than 48 hours. They had to have scores of greater than 14 in their non-dominant hemisphere or greater than 19 in their dominant hemisphere uh, and reduce 
level of consciousness on the NIHSS score. An additional criteria for inclusion was ischemic infarct of at least two-thirds of the MCA territory, including the basal ganglia, on imaging. They were excluded if their modified ranking score was greater than 1, they had a pre-existing Barthel index of less than 95, or absent pupillary reflexes, GCS less than 6, or hemorrhage or other brain lesion. So the treatment groups were one control group who got consensus therapy, which is basic ICU care, osmotherapy, sedation, ventilation, etc. And the surgical group who got a large hemicraniectomy, which is greater than 12 centimetres, and a duroplasty. The outcomes, uh, well, the DSM recommended cessation after 82 patients assessed at six months, and by then there had been 112 enrolled. And that was because the primary endpoint, which was survival without severe disability, which was a modified Rankin score of 0 to 4, was 38% in the craniectomy group compared to 18% in the control group. That's an odds ratio of 2.91, confidence intervals of 1.06 to 7.49. So wow, 38% compared to 18%. When the scores were dichotomized between 0 and 3 versus 4 to 6, there was no significant difference. And that's because there were no patients who were 0 to 2 in either group. Only 7% versus 3% were a Rankin score of 3, and 32% versus 15% were a Rankin score of 4. So the difference is that a lot of patients got converted from a score of 6, which is death, or 5, vegetative state, uh, or severe disability, to 4, which is moderate severe disability. And that means unable to attend to own bodily needs without assistance and unable to walk unassisted. So if we look at this again, because the primary outcome was survival without severe disability, and that included a Rankin score of 4, it's not as great an outcome uh, as it looks at first glance because they didn't create more patients in the survival to 0 to 3 group, which are all good outcomes. They actually only created patients in 4, which is still severe disability. So is hemicraniectomy in over 61-year-olds having a large MCA stroke a good thing? I guess that'll be up to the patients, the families and the clinicians to decide if conversion of Rankin score 5 and 6 to four is the outcome thereafter. Food for thought. Okay, let's move to the other end of the age scale. Late outcomes of a randomized trial of high frequency oscillation in neonates. This is the UK Oscillation Study Group published in the New England Journal of Medicine. This is an impressive long-term follow-up study. So 797 neonates born before 29 weeks gestation were enrolled in a multi-center randomized trial that compared high-frequency oscillation to conventional ventilation. And this was immediately after birth. 592 survived to hospital discharge and 319 were followed up as adolescents. And they found that in terms of lung function tests there was a higher mean FEF 75 scores with oscillation than conventional therapy um, and there's a high percentage of children below the 10th percentile of FEF 
75 Z scores they are in the conventional group and some of the other lung function tests also favoured oscillation. There was no difference in respiratory health um, and overall there was no difference in health related quality of life even though there was a higher reporting of emotional symptoms in the oscillation group. Um, in terms of functional status the only difference was that in the oscillation group performed better in three of the eight academic domains. So overall extremely preterm children supported with oscillation had significant although modest improvements in respiratory function at adolescence compared to conventional ventilation but no difference in respiratory health. The authors discussed the concerns expressed previously about the risk of neonatal brain injury with oscillation and the results from this study which was little difference in quality of life and improved academic performance and this was in visuospatial domains must somewhat allay these fears although as the authors point out no formal neurocognitive function testing was performed so I think overall this is probably a positive trial for oscillation back to JAMA psychiatric diagnoses and psychoactive medication use among non-surgical critically ill patients receive, receiving mechanical ventilation so this is another big population based cohort study and it's from Denmark and so what they tell us about medical critically ill patients is that they're more likely to have a psychiatric diagnosis and psychoactive medications than the general population or the hospital population prior to critical illness. In addition, there is a higher rate of new psychiatric illness, which is 0.9% following critical illness, than the hospital population, and that was highest in the first three months after critical illness. And there was no difference by the last three months of the year following critical illness. And this psychiatric illness increase was predominantly mood and anxiety disorders. Finally, there's a higher rate of new psychiatric medication prescribed, and that was 20% more after surviving critical illness than the hospital population. So it seems to be telling us that there's a bit more psychiatric illness prior to ICU, but in that first three months after surviving critical illness that there's a spike in mood and anxiety anxiety disorders and use of psychiatric medications which I guess isn't surprising. Again in the Scandinavian countries we have the Finn-Rassussi study group uh, arterial blood gas tensions after resuscitation from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest associations with long-term neurological outcomes and this was published in Critical Care Medicine. This prospective observational study adds more information to an area of growing interest which is the optimal management of arterial oxygen and carbon dioxide levels post cardiac arrest with recent retrospective studies reporting an association between hyperoxia and poor outcomes the authors aimed to examine prospective relationships between time-weighted oxygen and carbon dioxide levels in 409 patients from 21 Finnish ICUs with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest who had survived to hospital and remained comatose or ventilated. They included CO2 as it may affect cerebral outcomes through its effect on blood flows. And what they report is that the mean 24-hour PaCO2 
was an independent predictor of good outcome at 12 months. Mean 24-hour PO2 was not. And multivariate regression analysis revealed time in the PO2 band that was higher than 45 millimeters of mercury was associated with good outcomes. So overall, this study strengthens the call for interventional trials that examine the ideal carbon dioxide and oxygen strategies following out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Okay, moving on to intensive care medicine. Prone positioning reduces mortality from ARDS in the low tidal volume era, a meta-analysis. So prone ventilation re-emerged onto centre stage following the publication of the Perceiver trial last year in the New England Journal. And if you recall, there was a reduction in the primary outcome, which is 28-day mortality with prone positioning. And it was 16% versus 32.8%, hazard ratio of 0.39. So this meta-analysis is justified on the grounds that no previous trials or meta-analyses reported such a large effect as the Perceiver trial. And anticipated the heterogeneity in outcomes may be due to the gradual adoption of other protective strategies in ARDS over the last decade. So they identified seven trials with 2,119 patients in whom 1,088 were prone and they found that overall prone positioning was not associated with a relative risk of death 0.83, 95% confidence intervals, 0.68 to 1.02, but there was significant heterogeneity amongst the studies. When stratified by low or high tidal volume, and they used 8 mils per kilo predicted body weight, proning was associated with a significantly decreased risk of death in the low, low tidal volume group only, and that was a risk ratio of 0.66, confidence intervals 0.5 to 0.86. And tidal volume accounted for over half of the heterogeneity in these studies. Finally, high versus low PEEP strategies aren't explored. So they concluded that what we need is a confirmatory prone trial where open lung or low tidal volume protective ventilation strategies are used to further assess this effect. So maybe that's coming. Also in ARDS, in intensive care medicine, we have one-year mortality and predictors of death amongst hospital survivors. So this ARDS follow-up study looks at the survival gap, that is the gap between hospital and long-term survival. With critical illness, mortality is decreasing and the host of negative trials suggesting it is going to be difficult to improve hospital outcomes much further than we already have. So perhaps it is important to explore the magnitude, the risk factors and the causes of mortality in the year after critical illness. This prospective study established the cause of death and risk factors for death in 646 ALI ARDS patients. And they report a gap in mortality from hospital, which is 24% to one year, 41%, and two years, 54%. So that is, over half the patients that survive to hospital discharge following ALI, ARDS, have died within two years. Independent risk factors for death at one year in hospital survivors included age, severe comorbidities, and that was HIV, metastatic cancer, hematological malignancy, non-metastatic cancer, and chronic renal disease. 
not living at home before hospital and hospital length of stay. The fact is that we're not associated with one-year outcome in hospital survivors included ICU length of stay, severity of illness and organ failures. Note that this applies to hospital survivors, so although these factors may predict hospital survival, they may not affect outcome in those who do not survive. The most common cause of death in hospital survivors was malignancy. So what do we conclude from this? Well, although short-term survival has improved markedly for ALI, ARDS, long-term survival remains poor, with much of it due to pre-morbid disease. An argument can be made that it is more realistic to measure 30 or 90 day survival for critical illness trials, as the survival gap from, from this period to one year is related to pre-morbid factors, not critical illness factors. So lastly, let's look at histamine 2 receptor antagonists versus proton pump inhibitors on GIT hemorrhage and infectious complications in the ICU, published in JAMA Internal Medicine. Should we use H2 receptor antagonists or PPIs to prevent GI hemorrhage in mechanically ventilated ICU patients? So there is level 1 evidence favouring PPIs with their stronger acid suppression effects. However, this finding is being challenged by the uncertainty about the extent of possible risks of increased infectious complications including VAP and Clostridium difficile infection with PPIs and there's insufficient data to adequately address this. This database linkage cohort study looked at ICD-9 coding diagnoses for GI hemorrhage and other complications in 35,000 ventilated patients in 71 hospitals. They found that 38% received H2 receptor antagonists and 62% PPIs. This is what we expect. More people get PPIs. What they report is that the H2 receptor antagonists were associated with less GI hemorrhage, 2.1 versus 5.9%, less pneumonia, 27 versus 38.6% and less Clostridium difficile infection, 2.2 versus 3.8%. We didn't expect that. After propensity scores and covariate adjustment, the odds ratio for all was significantly higher with PPIs. So this challenges the prevailing wisdom that PPIs are better, and with over 60% of patients receiving them, this could be of great impact. And the author argues this needs to be tested prospectively. And there is a plan for this, at least in Australia and New Zealand, with the PEPTIC study, a multi-centre cluster crossover randomised registry trial proposed in Australia and New Zealand. And this is really interesting because it, not only will it look at the question, but it will be the first cluster crossover large RCT performed in intensive care. Well, that's it for the month of March. Come to the website and look at the abstracts or read the papers in full yourself. Otherwise, we'll see you next month. Thank you.